thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to tackle chapters 32 through 34 of the Book of Numbers. And now the focus is beginning to shift from the exodus, from the movement out of Egypt through the wilderness to the settlement. And so we're going to deal with four themes. First, the settlement of the Transjordan. Second, the wilderness itinerary, a, a, a sort of summary of the itinerary that the Israelites followed. Third, the division of Canaan, how was the land divided? And fourth, the boundaries of the promised land. And uh, the boundaries of the promised land are going to be, you know, they, they bring with them some surprises, and I'll talk about that a little later. So those are the four themes we're going to talk about today. So let's start with the first one, which is the settlement of the Transjordan, with a little bit of a context. Last week we saw that, or we, we studied the, the war that Israel led against, um, exactly, against the Midianites as a punishment of the temptation that the Midianites put the Israelites under. And they conquered. So now this land of the Midianites... And, likewise, the land of Og, and some other land which are in in modern-day Jordan. Therefore, outside the boundaries of the promised land are available. They're available. And as a result of that, you have two and a half tribes. The tribes of um, Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, remember Manasseh has been significantly reduced in size, so it's now a half-tribe, come to Moses, and they say, verse 5, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. They have their herders. They have flocks. And they looked at the land and thought, you know what? That meets our need, the need of our Flock. So, we'll settle here. Give us this land, and we don't have to cross the road. Now, the proposal, therefore, is that um, since the enemies of God, since God himself was with them, as we saw last week, and they've subdued their enemies, then why wouldn't God give them the land? And they make that proposal. 
to Moses. Before we go into the details, it is important to notice the order again. Uh, not that it is supremely important for our, for our purpose, but it is important for us to constantly exercise this kinds of watchfulness over Scripture. The order is Gad and Reuben. Gad and Reuben. Who's the eldest of the two? Reuben. But Gad and Reuben are repeated seven times. In fact, as we we shall see later in Scripture, that um, in the first book of Samuel, chapter 13, verse 7, David's census only mentions Gad. Reuben is not even mentioned. Solomon's 12th district is known as Gad. And Misha of Moab only mentions Gad. Reuben is completely absorbed. Now, go back and read the testament of Jacob in the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Where where, uh, Jacob told his first son, Reuben, that he had preeminence in birth, but he shall not have preeminence over his brothers. And you can see it coming into play now. That prophecy that Jacob made, which he foresaw, is being realized as we speak. Gad is already having more... Pro- ha- ha- have, Gad has a greater pro- uh, preeminence over Reuben. Now, that same principle where the head of a tribe, by his own actions, influence and impact the future of the entire tribe, that same principle applies in our families. You understand what I'm saying to you? That same principle applies in our families today. You and I do not have a Jacob who spoke to our ancestors for us to go back to and then read and figure out, oh, because of this, because what my ancestor did, I am either blessed or I am under a curse. Through no fault of mine. The sins of my ancestors are the sins of my ancestors. The blessings of my ancestors are the blessings that belong to them. But I am affected by them. Yeah? Now, the effect of these things, on their own, by themselves, do not determine my destiny. The fact that, say, that you have in your ancestry line a saint, doesn't on its own determine that you're going to go to heaven. You have a role to play. Likewise, if you had in your ancestry someone who committed a really grave Uh, sin and anger the Lord doesn't mean that you're going to go to hell. Yeah? But what it means is that your lives today are affected by this. Let me give you another good example. When I was young, um, I had determined that I did not trust insurance companies and I thought they were all evil. 
So I had determined that since the Lord cares for us, He will provide. Why should I go and have an in, in, why should I buy an insurance policy? And I had a really good a spiritual director, Father uh, Mike uh, Dave Sands, who is an Opus Dei priest, used to be math teacher with a master's in mathematics, and, a, and he's done his theology studies. Very good uh, priest. So my wife wasn't really comfortable with my position, so we went, the two together, and met with Father Sands. And I laid out my argument before him, and I said, if, if something happens to me, God will provide. And, and, and I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me, and he said, yes, he will provide, but she will suffer greatly. He didn't deny the fact that God would provide. Yes, he will provide. But she, your wife, will suffer greatly. And then he proceeded to give me the uh, business card of an insurance salesman who happened to be a member of Obestei and ended up buying an insurance. <laughs> Not convinced, by out of obedience, he told me to buy one uh-huh. in no uncertain terms, which is something I liked about him. And... Um, Realizing that God works through these ways to help us. Right? So likewise, in your ancestry, there may have been people who play today a far greater role in your lives than you suspect. There may be holy men and women in heaven who are saints who intercede day and night before the Lord for you. There may even be saints who are canonized who've adopted you. If, for instance, you have a specific inclination towards a saint, you never knew the saint, he's not of your background, shall say, or your country, neither the same period, right? But you have a very strong devotion towards the saint. Please do not insult the saint and think it is your own doing. That on your own you came to this wonderful attitude or relationship with the saint. Rather, practicing humility, think it is the saint who tapped you on your shoulders. If you take that position, then what do you think you'll do next? You'll want to know who that saint is, right? You'd be interested to know more about him or her. And that might lead you to where you need to go. Make sense? Um, I had waited to get the green card for, I think, 11 years. And when we received it, as on any important event in my life, I go and I check the calendar, first thing I do, to see whose feast day it is. And in this case, it was the feast of St. Cyprian. I have never paid attention to St. Cyprian. I didn't know who St. Cyprian was other than his name is mentioned in the martyrology of the church. He's one of them who's mentioned, but that's all I knew about him. But on that day, my thought was, just in case St. Cyprian had something to do with it, I better honor him. You understand? There is a sense of duty that we have towards the community of the saints. 
and we should not ignore it. So please, do not live your lives with an individualistic mentality that says, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't, it's all my doing. It's me, God, and nobody has anything else to do with it. Right? So that's on the positive side. On the negative, you may have, on your ancestry, people who have committed uh, some serious sins. You may have, maybe among your mothers or grandmothers or um, up the chain, they may have had an abortion. So you need to, you, you need to rely on the power of baptism. You need to rely on the power of the blood of Christ to cut yourself from all these bad influences. It's called healing the family tree. That is an important element of your spiritual journey. You're part of a family. You're not doing this alone. Yeah? It is something that we have to constantly consider. When a big event hits us, we need to examine ourselves. We have to examine ourselves and see why is that happening to us. Good or ill. Good or ill. We have to examine ourselves. It's very important. All right. Now, back to this, um, back to chapter 32. Here, the word they use is that since God has conquered, which is a term nowhere else used for the conquests of God. They said, since the Lord has conquered Transjordan, it is as much his land as is Cisjordan. That's what they're saying. That's their argument that they're making. But the argument is really a distortion. The argument is a distortion. Why? Because the land of Sihon, which is part of the area they want to have, that land was formerly Moabite. Sihon is part of Moab. And that is stressed in chapter 21 verse 21 verse 26 because it's part of Moab it is forbidden this whole area is forbidden it's a forbidden territory from the very beginning in fact for Israel this land is not only forbidden but impure interestingly enough the rabbis later on always said that Transjordan was exempt, exempt from the requirements of the Feast of First Fruits. So the tribes of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh were not required to bring in the gifts of first fruit because this land was not given to them by God. Not only that, the interesting thing that is going to happen later in about um, 780 years, no, I'm sorry, no, no, I'm counting wrong. In about 320 years down the road, is that this land that was occupied by Gad and Reuben will be the first land to be overtaken by the Assyrians. Now, the interesting thing is that Moses, in verses 6 to 15, rejects the request. Because 
The way he sees it is that they are afraid of Canaan just as their ancestry was afraid of Canaan. And therefore, they just don't want to go and fight. Now, back then, 12 scouts went into the land, came back, and 10 of them said, we cannot take this land, it's populated with giants, etc., etc. If 10 men could demoralize Israel, how much more two and a half tribes? So the initial response by Moses is, no, you want to incur a much greater wrath than your, your ancestors? We're not going to do that. However, Gad and Reuben were not motivated by fear. They're motivated by economic gain. Right? It's the economy that moves them forward. All right? And in rabbinic tradition, that economic gain was condemned as follows. You find that they were rich, possessing large numbers of cattle, but they loved their money and settled outside of the land of Israel. Consequently, they were the first of the tribes to go into exile, as we will see in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26. What brought it on them? The fact that they separated themselves from their brethren because of their possessions. See, this is very subtle, but important. You can do God's will, but you can do it for the wrong reason. It is not enough to do God's will. You've got to do God's will for the right reason. And St. Paul is emphatic. You can go and feed the poor and visit the prisoner and uh, clothe the naked and raise the dead. Do all the works of mercy. But if you have no love in you, you have nothing. The works will not save you. If done for the wrong reason. The works will be good. You're doing good works. It doesn't imply that you are good. This is something hard for us to understand. Because of a misunderstanding or a misconception of the words of Jesus, by their fruits you shall know them. We equate fruits with external works of mercy. We think this is how we determine whether something is good or bad. Why? Because we take economic principles and we apply them to grace. How do you know if a company is doing well? well? You look at the stock market and you look at how much they're selling, right? Agreed? This is how you know if the company is doing well. Whether the company is actually selling food or porn doesn't matter. They're doing well. Yeah? You see the point? You see how we measure grace? Oh, so-and-so is able to convert so many, or do this and then any other. Yeah? Perfect example that is really hard for people to pull away from, which is controversial today, is Medjugorje. People judge Medjugorje based on external fruits. So many people go and get converted. So many people go to masses. This and that and other happen. Yes? Absolutely. But that's not how you determine whether it's true, whether it's authentic or not. It's really hard for us to believe that. Because we are outward facing. 
our senses are so strong that they pull us in that direction. Now, again, don't mis, mis, misconstrue my words to say that I, I think Medjugorje is not true. I don't think. I'm not the church. I wait for the church to speak. And when she does, whatever she says is the truth. It's as simple as that. And if you can imagine what kind of difficult job this is, you can say to yourself, thank God I'm not the church. I have the easy part. Just have to wait. But remember that. Always remember that. I don't need to mention names, but I can point you to a very well-known priest who's going through really difficult times right now. Please pray for him. As a illustration what I'm talking to you about. Yes? Okay. You understand? That's key. These are not the fruits that Jesus is speaking of. These are not the fruits. Because if that's the case, you know how tyrannical this is? Let's take a mother. She's taking care of her kids. She helps her kids grow. She sacrifices so much for them. She does not preach, does not teach. Nobody has ever heard of her. There is no tape that, that has uh, recorded her wisdom over the years. What are her fruits? Three kids, let's say. Only could have three kids. Three kids, that's it. If that's the benchmark we're going to use, let's take St. Therese of Lisieux, one of my favorite saints. You know why she's one of my favorite saints? Because she did nothing. What did St. Therese do during her life? Small, small acts of charity. She smiled at a nun she didn't like. Yeah? She prayed for a man who was going to be killed. Uh, and she got tuberculosis and died. You know how many other nuns have these kind of things happen to them? It, in fact, it was so much so that when people came and knocked on the monastery say, at the convent, saying, why are you going to start the, when are you going to canonize her? The sisters were saying, what for? What did she do? What are her fruits? Is the message starting to really seep in? Because unless it seeps in, we're all missing the boat. Yeah? Unless this message seeps in, we're missing the boat. We're running after illusions. What are the fruits? The only fruits that count. The only fruits that determine your destiny are your virtues. Your virtues are the fruits of your love. That's why St. Therese is such a big saint. That's why St. Charbel, a hermit living up in Lebanon, um, speaking a language 95%, 99% of the rest of the world could never understand, did nothing of his life, nothing. I mean, even his life story is what, maybe 50 pages? You've got to stretch it to get 50 pages about St. Charbel. Yeah? But the, the, the most exalted example I'll give you, St. Joseph. What did St. Joseph do when he was alive? Do you know of any miracles St. Joseph did when he was alive? Okay, what word did he speak? Did he say anything to anybody that we know of? 
Nothing. And he is the greatest saint in heaven after Our Lady. Nobody is greater than St. Joseph. Nobody. Nobody. What did he do? He raised Jesus. Yes. But day to day, what did he do with our Lord? Did he sit him? Did he take him to the mountain? Did he give him the beatitude? What did he do? Cut wood. The greatest saint in heaven. Terror of demons. Protector of the universal. What did he do? You get that? That should be great consolation for all of us. That's a great consolation. Most of us are not, you know, most of us are not, no, we don't, people don't know who we are. It doesn't matter. Your virtues, focus on your virtues. Those are the fruits. That's how you know. Yeah? St. Jerome. St. Jerome had a really bad temper. He was impatient, he was raucous, he could raise his voice, you get it. And he was in Jerusalem, and he was working. And towards the end of his life, they asked him, how about your, what's your, you know, how are you doing with your impatience, St. Jerome? I'm working on it. Still working on it. But that accounted for a lot in the eyes of God. He was still working on it. That's St. Jerome. Yeah? So please, always remember, the fruits are your virtues, your inner life, the things that people cannot see. That's what God looks for. This is how He knows you love Him. (coughs) When something bothers you, and you're about to tell the person what you think, and you bite your tongue and you smile, now you love Jesus. Yeah? That's worth gold for him because you are really making an effort for him. It's simple. It's small. And Saint, uh, and I haven't read him. I strongly recommend you do. Saint, um, um, hmm, the founder of Opus Dei, Saint Jose Maria Escriva, his favorite word is, you find Jesus in the kitchen. You find Jesus in the kitchen. That's it, in the kitchen. You're doing the dishes. One dish for a soul. But when you do the dishes, do them really well. (coughs) Do them really, really well. Because you know what? Jesus is going to come and eat with you. It's your son, it's your daughter, it's your husband, it's your brother, it's your wife. Do them really well. Do them from all your heart. Because Jesus is the one to whom you're doing those dishes. And that, you're doing the dishes, Our Lady is receiving this treasure from your hands, and she can be converting a thousand people because of what you just did. See, see, technology. Technology. Remember this. At the end of the day, technology is a really good point. At the end of the day, all of us need an amount of pain to get to heaven. No one gets to heaven without pain, suffering, right? So, we can do it the easy way and we can do it the really hard way. The easy way is when you choose the suffering, when you accept it gladly, the little sufferings that God sends you every day, when you don't throw them away, when you accept them, 
and you work on them. Somebody irritates you, you look at this person as a gift. If you're suffering from the control, if you can't control your eyes, and your eyes are wandering because it's summertime, and during summer, I don't know what happened to a lot of women, but they kind of forget to get dressed when they go out. You can look at them as, how come she can dress this way? I'm being so... Or you can say, she's a gift from God. If I don't look at her, I'm saving a soul. God is sending you these little sufferings. You're accepting them and you're giving them flowers to Our Lady. Turning them into roses. You're a good ground. Roses are growing and you're giving them to Our Lady. Yeah? Or you can make it the hard way. Where every time God sends you these gifts... You mumble and grumble and criticize and complain. And, but God loves you, right? God, and he, as He shows us in Scripture, plan A is not working with you. You should have come out of Egypt on your own a long time ago. Instead, you're sitting there, mumbling and grumbling and complaining and wanting your own way. What does He do then? He loves you. He's going to send you a cancer. Yeah? MS. He's going to let you die alone. Something. Something so that when you stand up in front of him, he shows you all your brothers and sisters have suffered. You don't blush at embarrassment thinking, oh, I had it really easy. Yeah? Something to say when he shows you all these people dying in Africa or in a war all over the place, you don't stand in front of him saying, whoa, I really messed it up. Didn't I, Lord? Get it? Yeah. So, dishwashers, right? Remember that. Technology is good. No, no, technology is good. Don't get me wrong. Technology is good. But always remind yourself there's a cost associated to it. You use technology to make your life easy. All right. That means, that means you're telling God, okay, give me a credit on the suffering that I have to go through. Pack it to the end. Pack it to the end of my life when I'm done with all these things. Then I can really focus on you and go through some suffering. When I'm ready to die. I'll just condense it all there and go through it. Is that what you want? Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Do you understand the, the, the essence of what Scripture is teaching us? These people, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, wanted the land, which is a good thing. God conquered it, yes. But what, for what purpose? What was the purpose of God giving them the land in the first place? To worship. To worship Him. These guys went to Moses. And what did they say? They didn't say, this land is great for our kids. This land is secure for our wives. No, no, no. This land is good for our cattle. It wasn't family that drove them. Let alone God. They didn't say, on this land, we... Sense God's presence. We know we will live a holy life. Give it to us. No. This land is good for our cattle. Give it to us. So after Moses rejects this, they come back and they say, no, no, no. We're willing to go fight. We're going to fight. Allow us to leave our families behind and leave enough men to protect them. But we will be the vanguard. We will be the shock troops for you. And if you fight, and you see that we are indeed doing what you want us to do, then give us the land. And Moses complies. 
What do you think would have happened if Moses said no? Just think about it for a second. Because obviously, it's not God's plan. God told them, I'm going to give you a land. God has, in, um, he knows what land he wants to give them. And he knows who should get what. These guys now telling God, God, you know what? Your plan is not good as our plan. Our plan is better. Because we know best. So please step aside while we negotiate with Moses. Let's assume Moses told them, no, you're not getting it. What do you think they would have done? Yeah. Do you think they would have gone and fought on the other side? No, they may have actually possibly joined the enemy. Just to make a point. Who knows? Moses knows that. And so he degrades down from plan A to plan B. You see how God works? This is what scripture is teaching us. Yes, God will meet us where we are. And sometimes he gives us what we're asking for, knowing for well that there is a payment associated with it later. If, do you want to know if you have wisdom? Here's a very simple test to know if you have wisdom or if you're foolish. If when you ask God for something, if when you ask God for something, you do not completely surrender this to him, then you're asking for what you want. And if you're asking for what you want, you better be really afraid. Because you really don't know what you want. How many of you can play chess? Okay, I'm a lousy chess player. Never liked the game. You know that in chess, the greatest masters can see what? Eight steps ahead, something like that? Eight. Eight steps ahead. This guy is considered great. Eight steps ahead. Yeah? Okay. How many of you can see eight steps ahead in your lives? The decision you're making today, can you see the consequences of the decision eight steps forward? Okay. If you don't see the consequences, how do you know that what you're asking for is really good? If you don't know, so what are you really asking for? At best, it's a guess. Yeah? On the other hand, we have to make decisions. We have to make, every day we have to make decisions. So how do we do that? That's where this abandonment to God's will gets into the picture. God, may your will be done. The words of Jesus in the garden. Father, let this cup pass by me, but not my will, your will. Jesus didn't say that as a sort of a submission to the Father in the sense of, oh, wow, I have this heavy weight, but, you know, God, whatever you say, I, no. It's out of complete trust and love in his Father. And this is how we should be doing everything. That's the key. If you make decisions without praying about it, without asking God an angel, without asking God and waiting for his response, then you're being like the, the five foolish virgins because you really don't know what you're asking for. Yeah? So they go through this compromise formula and they essentially are saying we're going to be the shock troops. The towns and sheepfolds would have required adequate manpower to protect them against attack from neighboring tribes. So therefore, what happens is that according to the calculation that we have in the scriptures, um, the two and a half tribes that crossed the Jordan numbered about 40,000 shock troops. 
However, their combined military force numbered 110,580. Therefore, essentially, what they did is that they sent one-third out as shock troops, and the rest stayed back to rebuild the whole area of Gad. Right? And there's a number of cities that are, that are named here. And so here's the interesting um, Midrash, which is a sort of a reflection, if you will, or a small homily uh, on, on this particular passage. The Reubenites and Gadites cherished their property more than human life. Saying to Moses, we will build here sheepfolds for our flocks and towns for our children. Moses said to them, that is not right. Rather, do the more important things first. Build towns for your children and afterwards sheepfolds for your flock, which is exactly what happens in the scriptures. Moses reverses their, their priorities. Because first, the thing about the sheep, the flock first, and then the kids. He said, no, 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 the other way around. Okay. It's kind of interesting. These people walked with God all these years, etc., 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 and they still don't get it. You see that? So it shouldn't surprise you. Take that as a measuring rod for what you should expect in the church. There will be a lot of people in the church that are here for a long time or outside, and they don't get it. They don't get it. And don't be shocked that they don't get it. Instead, ponder this mystery of the human heart. Ponder, reflect on it, but don't be shocked. Nothing is new under the sun. Book of Ecclesiasticus, right? Nothing is new under the sun. The Holy One, blessed be, He said to them, seeing that you have shown greater love for your cattle than for human souls by your life, there will be no blessing in it. How do you know that what you're doing is being blessed by God? You want to know? Yeah? I'm sounding like a broken record. By their fruits, you shall know them. Do you want to know if your prayer life is fruitful? If you have a good prayer life, it is not measured by how many distractions you have how many lofty thoughts you're able to think, what kind of emotions you're going through, whether you're feeling loved or not. All of these things are beautiful and nice consolation gifts from the Holy Spirit. They're wonderful, and we always receive them with joy, but they are not a measuring rod. The only measuring rod that counts is your virtues. Your virtues. Are you able to master lust? Are you able to master gluttony? Are you able to master anger? Are you able to master um, envy, jealousy? Are you growing in these beautiful gifts? Gentleness, meekness, joy, love, gratitude. Are these things in your heart now? Because that is the beautiful aroma of sanctity. That's what God is looking for. So this is key for all of us to, to... Remember, as we continue on this journey. So, in chapter 33, it's a very detailed account of the listing of places, the trajectory that Israel followed as they left Egypt all the way to the moment they're about to enter the Promised Land. And it makes sense to have it here because with the, with the um, if you will, the distribution of uh, the Transjordan, the entire trek is now complete and they are about to enter the promised land. So it's a summary of the whole journey that they've taken. Now you read this chapter 
This is one of those chapters that you read and you wonder, or you might wonder, or you might mutter to yourself, why did the Holy Spirit want them to write this? What does it matter to me today when I'm reading this chapter and all these names? And this is the chapter, if you haven't read it, it sounds like this. So the people of Israel set out from Ramses and encamped at Sukkoth. And they set out from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And then they set out from Etham and turned back to Pihahiroth, which is east of Baal Ziphon. And they encamped before Migdol. And they set out from before Hahiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went a three days journey in the wilderness of Etham and encamped at Marah. And they set out from Marah and came to Elim. At Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and encamped there. And they set out from Elim and encamped by the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea and encamped in the wilderness of Sin. You're getting the pattern. And it goes on like so for a total of 56 verses. I mean, I'm sorry, less. Uh, for um, 49 verses. So the first question is, why was this recorded? All right, this chapter is divided into three sections, or the whole itinerary, I would say. First, Ramesses to the Sinai wilderness, that's from verse 5 to 15. The Sinai wilderness to Kadesh, 16 to 36, and then Kadesh to the steppes of Moab, 37 to 49. Now, from our perspective, the actual direction of the first two sections is in doubt, since the site of Sinai is unknown. We really don't know where, well... I should say, we do not know with certitude where Sinai is, the site at Sinai. Why do we need this mystery? This question was asked way back when, and Maimonid, who was, if I'm not mistaken, the teacher of uh, St. Paul, right, Father? Maimonid? Wasn't he one of the teachers of St. Paul? Maimonid. Yeah, I'm not sure okay, I, I think he was. Maimonid? Yeah, yes. No, the, the rabbi. He was a rabbi. He said this, why the need for this summary? People would think that the Israelites sojourned in a desert that was near to cultivated land and in which man can live, like the deserts inhabited at present by the Arabs, or that it consisted of places in which it was possible to till and to reap or to feed on plants that were to be found there, or that there were wells of water in those places. Therefore, all these fancies are rebutted, and the traditional relation of all these miracles is confirmed through the enumeration of these stations. The Holy One, blessed be He, said to Moses, write down the stages by which Israel journeyed in the wilderness in order that they shall know what miracles I wrote, I wrote for them. Also, the Holy One, blessed be He, said to Moses, recount to them all the places where they provoked me. The ambivalence is therefore justified Scripture attests to both motivation for remembering the wilderness sojourn. And you find in Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, verse 14 uh, to 16, and chapter 9, verse 7. Two reasons, therefore. If you knew the names, you would realize that the path they follow, the circuitous path they followed, was not one made to support a large population, which will then confirm the idea or the principle that God was the one who sustained them. Secondly, there will be these places like Mara, for instance, and Meribah, where they provoked him. 
So it would be a reminder of those areas where Israel sinned against the Lord. And when you put them together, what do you see? You see trajectory in which God is providing, God is supporting, God is present, God is caring, and men rebel over and over again. Now, is that not a summary of our own lives? You could sit down and just write down the names of places where God met you and where you rebelled, and you would have a similar account. That's essentially the point of this chapter. In summary form, when you look at it, you realize what God has done for Israel and how Israel responded. Despite all the blessings that God gave them and the guidance He provided for them and His own presence in their midst, they continued to rebel. So if we now look at all of Israel, not as a group of people, but as a person, so I'm now applying to the moral sense, our journey, we are now Israel, each one of us is on this journey. God comes and He is the one who pulls us out of slavery and brings us into the wilderness. When did this happen? At our baptism. He comes and He takes us out of the slavery of Satan and puts us into the wilderness, which is the world in which we live. Yet He does not abandon us, but walks with us Every step of the way. He tells us how we should worship Him through the catechism. He tells us where to worship Him in the church. He brings us to the church. And when we fall, He's there waiting for us, for us to go and meet Him in the confessional so we may be forgiven and therefore be brought back into the community. So every time we fall outside of the camp, because what we've done makes us impure, God makes us pure again. He provides for us every step of the way, every day of our lives. He gives us the commandments. The commandments are given to us through scriptures and through the church. He helps us to integrate those commandments within us. And just as He did with Israel, God is there to punish us when we sin against Him and to bless us when we are faithful to Him. But if you notice, along the way, despite the many grave sins that Israel committed, God, through His providence, that is the working of the Holy Spirit, continues to provide for them and lead them to the promised land. And so therefore, His plan for every one of us is that despite our many sins, and despite the number of times where we betray Him, He still waits for us, wants to hold us by the hand, and brings us home. Yeah? So we would do well, just as this chapter is a reminder, we should on a regular basis, sit down and remember our life and see all these points in our life where we have received the graces of God and where we have not been faithful to Him.
So that in light of this reflection, we can see how He's working in us. And we can marvel at His mercy and give Him thanksgiving. That's what the purpose of this chapter is. Make sense? Yeah? All right. And now we go to the to chapter 33, which is the beginning of, of Cana, of the division in, in, um, of the promised land. 34, my bad. Sorry. 34. Now, the, the first thing I want to point out in this chapter, before going into the details a little bit, is that God, as usual, is the one who sets the boundaries. Not man. God sets the boundaries. And tells them what he's going to give them. Now, why is he giving them this land? Two reasons. One, because those who currently possess it do not deserve to possess it anymore. By their own actions, they have brought upon them judgment. Notice these people, the Canaanites, are not the Israelites. But God is telling Israel that I am bringing judgment on them. So the underlying message is that I am the God of all. I'm the sovereign Lord. And there is no other. That message will be made clearer and clearer in the consciousness of Israel. Because to the Israelites, God is their God. Yahweh is their God. Okay, but it doesn't mean that the other people cannot have other gods. You understand? It's not that, oh, well, um, if somebody comes today and says, I'm worshiping Zeus, we, we know, well, you know, he's pagan. And he doesn't know what he's worshiping. Right? It's, it just, it's an automated reflex to us. To the Israelites, no, fine, you got your God, I got mine. Just so happens mine is stronger than yours, but it doesn't deny, I'm not denying the fact that your God exists. That is going to come slowly. It's going to come slowly, right? To the, to the consciousness of Israel. It takes time for them to realize this. All right. Let's see now if I do have this chapter here or not. I hope I do. I want to point a couple of things which are, which I think are important. So, chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, Command the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan in its full extent, your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the side of Edom, and your southern boundary shall be from the end of the Salt Sea on the east, and your boundary shall turn south. He's describing precisely what the land will be like. Now, here's a couple of um, comments or thoughts that came to me when I read this. Now, this is personal, you see, because that promised land, as God lays it down, extends from the, you can think of it as extending from the current borders, from the current southern borders of Israel, all right, on the south. On the west, it's pretty easy. It's the Mediterranean coast. On the east side, it sort of goes up to uh, the lake Gennesaret and sh- shoots into uh, Jordan. So it takes a good bite of Jordan up to the Golan Height. All right? And then, you ready for this? It goes from there to the northern border of Lebanon. 
border of Lebanon. The northern border. Now, this is where I come from. And I'm reading this. And in this chapter, they're naming cities and villages I'm taking my kids to. Biblos is not some ancient thing that... Uh, Biblos is a current city in Lebanon. People live there. Fa'ra is another area that people know about. They know what that is. If you're from Lebanon, you know what Fa'ra is. It's a, it is named as part of the border. So when you read that, if you're from Lebanon, two thoughts come to mind. Number one was, well, I didn't know we were that bad. I mean, come on, God, we couldn't have been that bad that you have to dispossess us from the land. And then you have a tendency to say, well, wait a minute, God. Let, let, let's negotiate a little bit here. You see, for the rest of the people, for the majority of the people on this planet who do not come from this tiny little country called Lebanon, which is the size of New Jersey, it's very tiny, hmm? Uh, it's names. You're reading this, it means absolutely nothing to you. Right? But if God were to say to Israel, let's just transpose this a little bit, and then we say, and let's make it be today. So, the Israelites are today. What's happening, Moses and all of that, it's today. And he's right now telling them, so they're right now at the, um, let's say they are uh, at the border with uh, California. And he's saying, I'm going to give you the land from the border of Mexico all the way to Los Angeles. You shall dispossess these people and take their land. How do you feel about that? God is speaking. How do you feel about that? Can you relate a little bit better to the people who are being dispossessed? Yeah? You can go through a series of emotions. You might be tempted to say, Lord, um, no. I don't agree. I think, I think you're, you're, you're messing up here. And oftentimes, people do in different ways. But one of the common ways is to say, well, we don't need to read the Old Testament anymore. We have the New. Why should we study the Old? The Old is old. It's nothing to do. The New is what we should be because this is Jesus. Right? Especially you're coming from this region and you're reading these chapters. Oh, I'm going to read this. Yeah? Let's bring it back closer to home. God is telling them what the boundaries is, right? He's basically telling them where they're going to live and setting very specific boundaries. This is what they're giving them. For you and for me, God has a plan. Most often than not, when we hear the word God has a plan, we tend to think of the, well, difficulties, yes, but also of the possibilities. God has a plan. There's some goodies in there. Yes, but there's some limitations. To some, he'll give one talent. To others, two talents. And to others, five talents. And when he invited all the workers over to work for him, some worked one hour, some worked two hours, some worked four hours, some worked eight hours. And they all got paid the same. Yeah? Are you willing to submit to God when you think God is unjust? He takes your spouse away. He takes a kid away. He takes your job away. He doesn't give you that opportunity you wanted. Are you willing to submit to God or not? And how, 
how do you know whether you are going to submit to God or not? It's really easy. Examine your day, see all the gifts that God sent you, and see how you reacted to them. If in these small things you were mumbling and grumbling about them, how could you even think that you're going to be able to submit to God in the big things? Yeah? This is a, an important examination of our conscience. Whoever loves me more than country, family, land, possession, will receive in this world a hundredfold. No, it will receive in heaven a hundredfold and in this world as well. The implication also, if you do not love him more than all these things, you're not worthy of him. Do you love him more than all these things? How would you know? Well, that's exactly how you know. You submit to his will and you accept the truth. You accept the truth that your ancestors did not deserve the land they were living on. You submit to the truth that they were not living a moral life. And you do not put your faith into history, books of history that tend to glorify what we've done to the expense of the truth. Yeah? That's how you submit first to His Word and you believe in His Word because it is truth. And He will lead you to all things in the truth. But you do not presume to tell Him, I know better. That's how we show that we truly love him. Now, he gave them this boundary. The historical boundary never matched this. Israel never conquered all the way up to the north of Lebanon. They went up to Tyre. That's how far into Lebanon they've been able to go. But they've never been able to go all the way, all the way to Biblos. Never reached Biblos. And they never stayed exactly in these boundaries. They went out of it. They extended a little further in the east. Right? And that kingdom really lasted for about, in, if we're really optimistic, about 500 years before it was broken down. So today, when we look at what is going on in the Middle East, and we see the state of Israel that has now been, been essentially resurrected since the 1940s, what does that mean? Is, does it mean that God is now telling Israel, go ahead and conquer all this land that I had given you? Is that what that means? The way we understand this is through the covenant and the purpose of the land. The land was given for worship, yes? He gave them to worship Him. Does that principle still hold today? No. Right? Because Jesus himself told the Samaritan woman, neither in Jerusalem nor here, you will worship in spirit and the truth. And then throughout the entire world. Yes? So fundamentally, the world belongs to the church. Hmm? So why then, what should we make of the state of Israel from a theological standpoint? What is its significance? It is this. Remember Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? They wanted that land for pasturage, right? They wanted it because they saw in it a good they could associate with. 
think about it psychologically, it's going to be very, very difficult to convert the Jews to the faith until their relationship with the land of Israel has been resolved. Therefore, what God is doing right now is giving them this land not to fulfill the ancient prophecies, but precisely to show them that these prophecies have already been fulfilled. Therefore, if he truly loves Israel, he will not allow Israel to live in peace. He will not give Israel that peace that they want. Because it would be a false peace. It would be a peace without the Prince of Peace. That cannot happen. Hence, it doesn't really take a prophet to think that the Muslims will always be a thorn in the side of Israel, no matter what. And that thorn is God's gift. So what is God's gift to Israel? Islam. What is God's gift to the West? Islam. You understand? Remember when I say that he sent you those gifts during the day, these annoyances, those things that bother you, the things that irritate you, as means for you to exercise your virtues, so that when you stand before him and you see how much you gained from that in heaven, what your glory is going to be like because you suffered those little things, are you going to look at them as, as, uh, as a... Um, uh, a source of pain, or you're going to look at them as a source of joy. When you see that your glory in heaven is due to those little things you suffered here on earth for the love of Him, how would you look at those occasions? Wouldn't you be almost regretting He didn't send you more? Do you understand? Pardon? Okay. The Muslims, some, send me something else but the Muslims. Think about Europe. Think about Europe who's losing the faith. You see my point now? Yeah. So, that's what I mean. The reason why Islam is what it is today is because God is going to use it as a thorn to bring His people back. Yes? Yes? God is in control. Jesus is King of Kings Lord of Lord and Lord of history. And he doesn't care so much about the boundaries of these nations we drew on a piece of paper, although he honors them by giving each one of them a guardian angel. He cares about our souls. He's the heavenly physician that wants to heal us and bring us to him, especially his people, the Jews. Jesus never said, I'm not a Jew. Mary never said, I'm not a Jew. They're Jews through and through, and so are we. Yeah? That's why Israel as a state exists today. As a first step towards the conversion of Israel, which is a, one of the signs that has to happen before the end. So it might take hundreds of years before this happens. But it's a sign. Make sense? All right. So next week, we'll conclude the study. Now we're going to take a quick break, say, say a word of prayer, and then we'll take some questions. Father? All right. Questions? Yes. Yes. Correct. So, yeah, we, the, the, the tradition has always stated that the Pentateuch, the author of the Pentateuch, is essentially Moses. Now, obviously, there are certain things in the book, especially after the death of Moses, that tells you somebody else was writing. 
right? But the bulk of it comes from him. Absolutely. Yes. Well, yes, an atheist would say these obstacles, these itches, these things that happen to you just happen by nature. Well, yes, he's right. He's correct. But he's only half correct. It would be as if somebody's saying to you, love is measured by chemical reactions in the brain. That's all. Well, yes, true, there are chemical reactions that happen when you are experiencing the emotion of love. But we know that's only half the truth. In other words, if I, I can take a truth, the full truth, and reduce it to any particular plane, whether it's evolution, whether it's nature, whether it's the mechanical side, the chemical side, and I will find truth there. The prudent thing is not to reduce it to the, what I can see or understand. This is the heresy of naturalism, right? Now, as far as the atheist is concerned, if that atheist is, is satisfied in his atheism, then God has closed his eyes. And you are going to find it very difficult to reach him because God is saying, I don't want him to be reached. It's his punishment. Pardon? Okay, he's very good guy. I understand. Remember what I said earlier? Exactly my point. You are going to find a lot of people who are decent, who behave well, who do things, who do things that, have, that are morally upright. That is not how God measures, as I said earlier. We have to be very careful. And again, be careful not to canonize every dead person. Right? So, yes, he can be doing the right things. And sometimes when an atheist acts righteously, it's a curse. Because it gives him even more confidence and confirmation that he doesn't need God. Right? So, you, you always need to ask yourself this question, lest you're wasting your energies for nothing. When God puts you in front of somebody, remember, there are really two reasons. Fortunately, most people will not tell you this these days. Reason number one, He wants you to touch their heart through you. Right? If He does that, please be careful and avoid the sting of the devil, the scorpion lash, and think, oh, that means I'm holy. means nothing. Your holiness is related to your virtues. The fact that God used you to touch somebody else may be indeed a sign of his predilection to you or not. Be careful. Yeah? However, there's sometimes a second reason why he, puts you in, he, he, he makes you face somebody, and that is to increase his punishment. He hardened his heart. You speak to him, he will not listen. That is increasing his punishment. I get this straight out of Scripture. You will go speak to Pharaoh, but I will harden his heart. He will not listen. Where God, if you're going to harden his heart, why are you sending me? Why do you send me if you're hardening his heart? To increase his punishment. Once you understand the two sides of the covenant, blessings and curses, then all human activities make sense. If you only go with the blessings, then half of our activities are left as a mystery that you, can, you don't know how to deal with. And if you only go with the curses, the other half is also left out. It's both. So, 
That's why you need to know. And sometimes we put ourselves in those shoes because we want a boxing match. We're just itching for a fight. Right? We go talk to somebody that God did not send us to. Give you a perfect example. St. Francis. Wonderful, seraphic St. Francis decided that he was going to convert the Muslims. So he sailed to Egypt. Did you know that? St. Francis went to Egypt? No? He went to Egypt. He went to the king of Egypt, stood in his court, and, and he gave him a homily. The king of Egypt looked at him, was impressed by him, recognized this is a holy man, this is a good man, and sent him back. I never even thought twice about converting. St. Francis learned a lesson. If God is not opening the heart of that person, don't even bother. Your job is to be ready. That's all. Then let the rest, leave the rest to God. Yeah? The beautiful thing about this attitude is that you become truly a child of Mary. You're like a kid. You're playing in the garden, doing what kids do, carefree, joyful, secure, because you're in the garden of your mom. And nobody messes with mom. And then at one point, mom calls you over and says, hey, here's a rose. I want you to give it to this person over there. So you take a rose. If you're a kid, you run over. You give the person the rose politely. They say thank you. You say you're welcome. You go back playing. You have not a care on your shoulders. When you start taking this seriously, it becomes your job to convert somebody. Did you ever think that trying to convert somebody is like trying to get a woman to fall in love with you? You know how hard this is? You understand? As far as I'm concerned, God has not asked me to convert anybody. That's not my job. I can't even convert myself. If I could, I would. I could say, stand in front of the mirror, be holy, yes, and it'd be done. Uh, good luck with that. Not going to happen. Yeah? But from time to time, God taps me on the shoulder and says, I want you to do this. I just go do the errand. And as soon as I do the errand, then I do what my father told me to do when I was little. The Lebanese proverb, and it may not only be Lebanese, I don't know, but I heard in Lebanon, is do good and then throw it in the sea. And the meaning behind it is, do something good and then forget about it. That's the idea of throwing it in the sea. You'll never see it again. Apply yourself this way. You did something, okay, that was your job. Now forget about it. Don't turn yourself into a uh, holy accountant. Okay? And by the way, it goes the same for your sins. You went to confession, you confess your sins, God forgave you, believe he forgave you, forget about it. Don't keep on carrying the bag when he told you to drop it. Don't allow regrets to mess your life. He forgave you. Let go of it. Go play. Yes. Good question. Uh, Are all the kids affected by curses or blessings? They are all affected. Yes. Absolutely. Now, you play a part in this, right? But everybody's affected. Yeah. Just as if the father is drunk, everybody's affected. Correct. Yes. So it's healing of the family tree. Oh yes, absolutely. And there are two 
two references, Father Bevilacqua here does that, and Father Hemsch. Both of those priests do these focus on healing the family tree, and do we ever need it now? Well, if you go to Father Bevilacqua's website, there's information like what on Father Hemsch. You will find information where they offer masses and explain to you how you go about doing this. It's very powerful, very powerful, and very needed. So just go to his website. Yeah, I really encourage you to do that. Don't delay. Even if you don't know anything, you don't have to know what happened. You do not have to know what happened. You don't have to have a specific thing in mind. Right? It's an act of mercy anyhow, what you're doing, and do it. It's a good thing. Yes, Patty. So Holy Spirit Ministry is the website. Holy Spirit Ministry is the website for Father Bevilacqua. You can go there and check it out for the masses of healing. Pardon? Bevilacqua. It is B-E-V-A L. Okay, thank you. B-E-V-I L-A-C Q-U-A. You know, I would never win that uh, spelling bee contest. Yeah. Holy Spirit Ministry is a little easier if you have access to the website. Yeah, one word. One, you know, one, I mean, three words together. Holy Spirit Ministry. Yes. Well, absolutely. Is Islam growing in Europe a thorn? Absolutely it is a thorn. And honestly, my take is that I would prefer to deal with Islam than to deal with atheistic Europe. It's a much worse disease. Much harder to convert. So, um, it's a, it's a, it's a um, in many ways, it's an illusion to think that Islam is worse than the, state, the current state of Europe. It isn't. Or the, Islam is worse than the current state of the United States. It isn't. I would much rather deal with, with a a godly Muslim who fears God than deal with Americans who are hooked on porn any time of the day. Because at least we can have a conversation. Right? Now, I might die a martyr in the process. I can understand that. But at least we can have a conversation. All right? So, yes, uh, do not fear Islam. Do not fear Islam. Fear not. Be not afraid. Right? Okay. Yes. Yes. It, it, is, is it a good analogy to compare the Hebrews in the Old Testament to the church today? In many ways, it's more than an analogy. It is the lesson plan that God lays before us to show us what we have to do or not do in order to follow Him. That's why the Old Testament is important. In the in the words of the fathers of the church, it was called recapitulation. In that we recapitulate in our own lives the Old Testament and then the New. And then just as in order to get to the New, you have to go to the Old, we also in our lives, more often than not, follow the same circuitous passage to reach the New. So recapitulation is fundamental. This is why the study of Scripture and the understanding of how God deals with them is helping us shape up. Yes? I mean, if, if my hope is that through this study, you're shaping up. Because you're realizing God is serious. And there are serious consequences when you're dealing with Him. Without the Old Testament, we would not have that broad view. 
Jesus builds on it. He, he assumes that. Yeah? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.